This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. It's extremely important um, that we not only adapt, um, but with the rising sea levels, that mitigation is taken into account as well. That's urban economist Astrid Rosemary Ngano-Haas on the need to take action now to prepare for the possible impact of rising sea levels on West Africa's coast. Details coming up. Also, Burkina Faso's military government has expelled the French ambassador. The Norwegian Refugee Council says 2022 has been one of the toughest years ever for modern humanitarian work. And Tanzania's president has lifted a six-year-old ban on political rallies. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. The head of the Norwegian Refugee Council says 2022 has been one of the toughest years ever for modern humanitarian work. Jan Egland tells VOA's Carl Van Dam that because international humanitarian groups have never recorded as many people displaced by violence worldwide as they have this past year, including hundreds of thousands in Africa. Well over 100 million people displaced, 14 million of those in Ukraine alone. But of course, it didn't get better in Syria or in Yemen or in the Congo or in the drought-stricken Somalia and so many other places because it got worse in Europe, Uh, meaning we have more crises with tremendous uh, neglect than perhaps ever before because all eyes from the donor side from Europe, from North America, are on Ukraine. Like you say, a lot of people were focused on Ukraine and possibly to the detriment of other places. Can you talk about some of these other places? Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced in other countries as well. Yes, we in the Norwegian Refugee Council, we really try to go after needs and needs alone. It's called impartiality among the humanitarian principles that we live by. And every year we publish a list of the world's most neglected crisis in terms of money and resources per person in need, in terms of political and diplomatic interest in solving the crisis, and in terms of global media interest. And all of the top most neglected crises were in Africa in 2022, all of them. The Democratic Republic of the Congo was number one. Up there was uh, as well Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Nigeria, everything across the Sahel and Somalia. These crises have been also very hard hit by the war in Ukraine because of the cost spike for food, fuel and fertilizer caused by the war in Ukraine, but also of the aftermath of the uh, COVID pandemic, where supply lines uh, faltered and, and and inflation took off and the uh, income of the very poorest was uh, decreased. And finally, there is climate change. It's already upon us. And those who did the least to cause climate change are first and hardest hit. 
like the people on the drought-stricken Horn of Africa. That's Jan Egland, Secretary-General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He was speaking to VOA's Carol Van Dam. Nigeria's president says the country will pay $4 billion in extra interest if parliament rejects a loan to bond swap request on the central bank's overdrafts to the government. Reuters says the Senate last week delayed President Mohamedou Buhari's request to convert $53 billion worth of overdrafts into 40-year bonds. Buhari said today that the government pays a 3% margin above the central bank's lending rate of 16.5%, but his administration has negotiated a rate of 9% for bonds. According to the new service, the International Monetary Fund has urged Nigeria to phase out central bank financing of the government to help reduce double-digit inflation. Economists say the government spends more on debt repayments than on education and health. The administration says it has had to borrow money to work the country out of two recessions over the past seven years. A new report by the Africa Center for Strategic Studies says once in a hundred years, floods will become more common in coastal communities due to rising sea levels caused by climate change. As a stretch of West Africa's coast is set to become the world's largest megalopolis and an economic powerhouse, academics worry rising sea levels will stymie growth and impact the continent and the world. Henry Wilkins reports from Ganvi Benin. Catastrophic floods previously seen once a century are now projected to happen every 40 years due to rising sea levels caused by climate change, according to the new report from the Africa Centre for Strategic Studies, a US Department of Defence-funded think tank. Experts say the disruption to Africa's coastal and port cities will have a devastating impact on inland economic growth too. On the outskirts of Benin's economic capital, Cotonou, dwellings in the town of Gamvi are built on stilts in a coastal lagoon. It's sometimes referred to as the Venice of Africa. Agosu Zemenu Leon, a local government official in the commune of Soava, where Gamvi is located, says flooding has gotten worse in recent decades. He says there are two primary economic activities in the commune of Suava, agriculture and fishing. So when the water rises, the crops are destroyed. Also, the freshwater fish disappear as a result. Economic life becomes difficult. The effect on the community has been devastating. Alexandre Bodo, another Gamvi resident, says the floods killed his livestock and the water level rose to around 1.5 metres, inundating his house, despite it being built on stilts. He says many of our belongings were destroyed because of the flooding. The house, you see, was destroyed last year and I had to rebuild it on another piece of land to prevent the water from coming in again. He says he knows parents whose children drowned in the flooding. Communities along the coast, around estuaries and coastal lagoons like Gamvi, will be the first to bear the brunt of the climatic changes. Flooding and coastal erosion will also affect Africa's ports. Not enough is being done, according to economists like Astrid Rosemary Nadegano-Hass. One of the things that um, I find 
shocking is how little finance is going to, to support these cities overall in terms of building infrastructure and services. Um, but particularly with climate, um, it's extremely important um, that we not only adapt, um, but with the rising sea levels, that mitigation is taken into account as well. Experts say the stretch of West Africa's coastline from Abidjan to Lagos is on track to become the world's largest megalopolis and could be home to half a billion people by the end of this century. Daniel Hoornweg is a sustainable cities expert at Ontario Tech University in Canada. That's probably 50% of Africa's or more than 50% of Africa's total GDP in that strip. So if it develops well, it could really anchor the continent, it could anchor the, the globe in terms of heading into this sustainable development. Aside from Gamvi, Lagos and Ghana's capital Accra experienced major floods in 2022. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Gamvi. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Tanzania's President Samia Sulu Hassan has lifted a six-year-old ban on political rallies. Her predecessor, the late John Magafuli, banned public rallies in 2016, one year after he came to power, saying they could escalate into violence. Charles Kambe reports from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. The president made the remarks at State House Tuesday during a meeting with leaders of political parties. Our responsibility is to protect you to hold political rallies peacefully, finish well and live safely, the president says. Your responsibility as a political party is to follow the laws as they say. Let's do mature politics. Let's do politics to build and not tear down. Since coming to power after the death of predecessor Johnny Magufuli in 2021, Hassan has taken steps to break away from his policies, which were seen as muslin political dissent. Benson Singo is the deputy secretary of the Party for Democracy and Progress, better known as Chadema. He says, we are not celebrating this because it's our right. We are delayed in conducting our duties as political parties, which is our right according to the law. Singo asked that what we need to come together as Tanzanians to push our leaders who swear to administer and protect the law and should follow the laws. Some opposition politicians say the president's move should be a foundation stone for democracy in the country. Abdul Nondo is a youth win national chairperson of the Opposition Alliance for Change and Transparency Party. Nondo says, as political party leaders, Political parties should use this loophole to make sure that we will demand big reforms in our laws and constitution so that all these rights that some leaders have been breaking will be protected. He added that we should make sure there will be no other leaders in the future who come and use their words to break people's rights. Kumbusho Dawson, executive director of Reach Out Tanzania, a non-government organization advocating for human rights, says... He is optimistic about the future. It is something that is good for the nation because political parties can explain the people's problems and present their policies, he says. But also, Dawson adds, the president clearly explains the issue of continuing the new constitution. 
Dawson adds, the president clearly explains the issue of continuing the new constitution process. All of these will contribute to removing oppressive laws. In previous speeches, President Hassan has touched on key issues affecting Tanzania, particularly democracy, raising hopes for change. Implementing these changes may yet prove to be a challenge. Despite the president's different approach, he's from the same party as Magufuli and will still need its backing. Charles Kombe, for VO News, in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. The bodies of 28 men have been found in the northwestern region of Burkina Faso. Prosecutors say the victims were found in the town of Nuna on the last two days of December. They had been shot. Prosecutors say an investigation is underway but did not offer any information on the perpetrators. However, Reuters says the civil society organization CISC blamed the attacks on armed civilians masquerading as members of the Homeland Defense Volunteers, a group that receives funds and two weeks of training from the government to fight Islamist extremists. The French news agency AFP says the volunteers typically carry out surveillance information, gathering or escort duties. The Associated Press says Burkina Faso's military government has expelled the French ambassador. The government has not offered any explanation and the French embassy has refused to comment. The move comes as relations between the two countries continue to deteriorate and the West African country pursues closer relations with Russia. Last month, Burkina Faso's prime minister went to Moscow to consolidate efforts to fight an Islamist insurgency in the region. France sent troops 10 years ago to Burkina Faso and Mali to help combat the rebels, but local leaders complained that French support failed to contain the fighting. The expulsion of the French diplomat comes less than two weeks after the United Nations humanitarian coordinator in Burkina Faso, Barbara Manzi, was declared persona non grata. Last year, the military government in neighboring Mali expelled the French ambassador there as well. The Associated Press says violence linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group has killed thousands and displaced nearly two million people in Burkina Faso. Libya's Tripoli-based High Council of State, HCS, voted yesterday to resume dialogue with the East-based Parliament on all sovereign, constitutional and executive tracks. The HCS suspended dialogue on December 7th amid tension over a move by the East Libya-based Parliament to pass a law establishing a constitutional court in the eastern city of Benghazi. On December 23rd, the Libyan parliament retracted the law. Wolfgang Poshta, a former Austrian military attaché in Libya, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed al-Shanawi whether this dialogue could advance a political solution in Libya. I would say this is certainly a positive move. Although the HCS rejected in the very same session an invitation by the Presidential Council to a meeting with the HOR in Gadames on January 11. However, nevertheless, one should not be too optimistic because the prospects for an agreement about the constitution 
are still dire. The main outstanding issues are still the same. This is about dual citizens, military officers, active politicians in Saif al-Islam. Are they eligible to run for president or not? I would like to stress that it is most important to realize that neither HOR Chair Aguila Saleh nor HCS Chair Khalid al-Mishri are in a position to decide on these issues. In fact, it is highly unlikely that the HR or the HCS as such would be able to make a decision against the will of LNA Commander Khalifa Haftar, who is widely supported in the East, Chinu Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Dabeba, or against the powerful militias of Misrata and Tripoli. And I need to stress it is also highly unlikely that any of these individuals or group will change their views in the foreseeable future. The German ambassador to Libya called on the House of Representatives and the High Council of State and all active institutions in the country to respond to the aspirations of the Libyan people and to speed up the development of the constitutional framework to organize the elections. He said that the UN envoy Abdullah Batiri is working to achieve this goal. What's the best way to respond to his call? I would say the best way would be not to push only Akila Saleh and Khaled al-Mishri, but to discuss with those people who can really decide on these key questions. This would include LNA Commander Khalifa Haftar, Abdul Hamid Dabeba, the leadership of the Misrata, and I would stress also the southern tribes, just to name a few. And it would be also necessary to seriously face the question of an eventual political future of Saifa Islam. It can't be ignored that there are many people, especially in the South and among the former key tribes of the Gaddafi regimes, who would like to see him as a new president of Libya. So this question needs to be discussed openly and frank. And if the answer would be yes, I would like to warn. So if Saif should be allowed to run, this would probably not do any good to the stability of Libya, because there are many, many people who remember very well how much they suffered under the Gaddafi regime, and this could lead to a new war. The Hamid Baiba, the head of one of Libya's two rival governments, said his Tripoli-based administration was ready to hold delayed elections this year, vowing that 2023 would be one of elections and the unity of institutions. What's your take on that? The paper is using every opportunity, especially with Western diplomats, with UN and with the media, to stress he is for elections and he is supporting them and he wants to see them very soon, but without doing anything in practical terms to make them happen. He does not make any serious proposals on how to overcome the political stalemate. I would say he certainly could facilitate elections, especially by stating, I will honor my promise before the Libya Political Dialogue Forum and will not candidate for president. It does not look like he will do so anytime soon. But he could also significantly contribute to the stabilization of the general situation in Libya by agreeing to a mechanism for a transparent and more just distribution of the oil revenues. And it's also not likely that he will do this anytime soon. Nevertheless, I need to stress, without any doubt, the paper is one of the key persons for an eventual stabilization of Libya. That was Wolfgang Postai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. A former star player, nicknamed the Black Prince of South African football, is aiming to make kings of footballers around the continent with a high-tech tracking device that's already being used by some of the world's top clubs. Jomo Sono, regarded as the greatest attacking midfielder 
South Africa has ever produced has secured the rights to distribute the Playmaker Performance Measuring System in Africa. Darren Taylor tells us more uh, from Johannesburg, South Africa. Jomo Sono made his name in the early 1970s, playing for Soweto Giants Orlando Pirates. He was a fearsome tackler, a powerful striker of the ball, a dribbler of note, and had sublime passing skills. But Sono had the misfortune of being at the peak of his powers when apartheid was also at its height. South Africa was an international pariah, so he never got a chance to represent his country on the world stage. But Sono's skills were simply too good to ignore. European giants Juventus and Sporting Lisbon each offered him a contract, but the governments of both Italy and Portugal denied him work permits. He's convinced that 1970s Europe just wasn't ready for black African players. But America was. In 1977, Sono joined New York Cosmos, where he created goal after goal for legendary Brazilian striker Pele. Today, Sono's a businessman and technical director for the South African Football Association. I'm renowned for unearthing a lot of youngsters from the dusty streets of all the black townships. And one of them will be appearing soon, who I discovered was 15 years old, and I took him all the way to England. That was two years ago. It was during this visit to the United Kingdom that Sono saw the player maker in action for the first time. He decided he'd be the one to bring it to Africa. Sono's son and current Cosmos midfielder, Masilele, describes player maker as a talent scout driven by artificial intelligence. It's motion sense based technology. It is a wearable football technology that goes on your boot. It is completely comfortable that you do not feel that it is completely durable. It has a five hour recording time with a three hour charging time. So what it does is takes the statistics and technical balances and data of all the players that use the device on the football pitch so they can see how many times the player has passed the ball, how many times the player has received the ball, which foot the player is receiving the ball on, his kick velocity. So it really takes in all the data that your normal GPS tracking vest would not give you. Masilele explains that the player maker incorporates something called gait tracking. This constantly examines a player's body position, how he runs, how he moves. It helps coaches in terms of injury prevention and in helping the player grow technically on the ball to say that, no, look, this week your pass average was very low. We'd like you to work in terms of this or your sprint speed has slowed down. Are you injured? We'd like you to get more passes and get on the ball more. You know, so this really helps you just fine print all the finer details of the game. Manchester City and Liverpool are just two of the top clubs using the player maker. Strapped to the outside of a boot, it uses algorithms to analyse data, which is visualised for players and coaches to review on a tablet or phone. After a match, the boot sensor is connected to an app to access insights on 15 unique performance indicators, including physical data and leg balance. Masilele says PlayerMaker allows players to be their own coaches. 
it just makes the workload just a bit more easier for someone to come say, look, this is what I've done for the week. These are my statistics. This is my run distance. This is my pass average. You know, my playing tempo, how many times I play one touch, how long I hold on to the ball. Sono's senior winks and gestures towards his son. He's also been using it, and ever since he used it, it's improved. Eh? He's even scored now lately. The Playmaker device currently costs around $250, including a one-year subscription to the app. In African terms, this is expensive. Sono says it's worth it, considering that in South Africa, for example, parents are spending a lot of rands on football coaching. Parents are paying 5000 per month to keep their children at some of the soccer clubs in this country. 5000 per month to play and train football. I'd rather buy this. Sono says he's going to do his best to make the player maker as affordable as possible in Africa. His vision is to roll it out in youth leagues across the continent. I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Bob Bass, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.